Hi, I'm Louise Windmill, partner at Portland Communications. The very first episode of our podcast is a conversation between two leading political commentators. Alistair Campbell is a political strategist, famously serving as Tony Blair's campaign director and later as press secretary. A special advisor to Portland, he interviews John Sopel, BBC's North America editor, who has covered every twist and turn of the Trump presidency. The pair aim to really get to the heart of topics, including the future of American democracy, susceptibility to conspiracy thinking in the US and the UK, the weaponization of the media, and the challenges facing a newly minted Biden administration. We hope you enjoy the discussion. This is To The Point. We're delighted to have as our first Portland podcastee a name and a voice and a face that will be familiar to most of you, and that is Mr. John Sopel. John has been a BBC correspondent in various parts of the world for the last 16 years. I knew him best when he was uh, chief political correspondent in Westminster in the time when we had a credible and coherent (laughs) and effective and professional government. Uh, but he's also been Paris correspondent, uh, speaking fairly second-rate French, <laughs> and now is North America editor, where he's been for the last six years. And he's got a book out, and it's very, very timely, part of a of a trilogy. Uh, we did a previous chat when he published a book, If Only They Didn't Speak English, about our friends, the Americans. We then had a year at the circus, and now we have the book that even if it doesn't win any literary awards, it will win the award for the most puns in a title. Unprecedented, UN, capital P, residented, politics, pandemic, and the race that trumped all others. John Sopel, welcome. Thank you very much, Alistair, for that very warm, touching welcome, <laughs> and particularly about my French. <laughs> and the three books, right, okay, I've read, I've read the, the first two, and I flicked through the third one. If you track back, do you think we were all a bit slow to, to work out that this is kind of where it was going to end for Donald Trump? I mean, being honest, when I came out here in 2014, I had absolutely no idea that this is where it would end up. And even at 2016, when he won the presidential election, there were all these wise owls who would stroke their chins and they would say, ah, well, of course, the presidency is going to change Donald Trump. And here we are in 2021. We have seen an assault on the Congress carried out by his supporters seemingly uh, incited by him and it is donald trump who has changed the presidency the presidency has not changed him and it looks as though america is going to go through a period of upheaval because what i don't think happened when they stormed the congress was that that was some kind of cathartic moment and everyone thinks okay well we've had our protest now we can all go home mm. i think there is still a huge number of people very angry very determined and uh, yeah i think that people thought that donald trump could be managed and we'll give him a little bit of rope and then having given him a little bit of rope he was given some more rope and was allowed to tell a story about an election that just on, you know, I, I, I haven't counted the votes. I wasn't in the rooms where votes were being counted. I can't say 
All I would say is that every judge who has looked at this has rejected allegations of fraud. William Barr, ultra loyal, deeply conservative attorney general, has rejected this. Bagpipe, bagpipe playing as well. Bagpipe playing. Uh, and likes going shooting in Scotland as well. And no, I don't do that bit. No, I know no, you don't do that bit. <laughs> um, that all of the, all these different people, the Secretary of State in Georgia, Brad Raffensperger, who donated money to the Trump campaign, is a Donald Trump supporter, said there was no fraud. Mm. Now, when every, when every one of these people says there was no fraud, the election wasn't stolen, the only person who is really saying it out loud that there was this massive fraud is Donald Trump. But with an awful lot of people who seem to believe him, and also with this QAnon conspiracy theory group that I just find baffling, and it's not just in America, it's in most parts of the world. I mean, is there not a little bit of soul-searching to be done about the way that the media maybe normalised Trump's ability to lie, to shift to a different narrative without ever clearing up the ones that he lied about before? And aren't we seeing something a little bit similar in the UK? Do you know what? I, I'm not sure that is quite it, and I'm not making any defences of the media here because I think the media do have culpability, but I would, I would argue it on a slightly different level. The point I would make is that the media has become weaponized and monetized to be either pro-Trump or anti-Trump. There is, very, there is not very much in the American media space that looks like the BBC, and I should add ITV or Sky, where we kind of think we're going to reflect all viewpoints, we're going to hear all opinions, so that what you're left with is that if you're a Trump supporter, you will never ever tune into CNN or MSNBC mm. or probably any of the mainstream networks. You will go to Fox, and when Fox isn't quite red enough in tooth and claw, you go to one American news network or you go to Newsmax or you find you go on to Parler one of the kind of social media platforms where you're going to hear all your extreme views echoing back to you. And really interesting as that I went to uh, the ellipse, that parkland uh, south of the White House on the day that, of the storming of Congress. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I guess over the years, I've done literally dozens of Trump rallies. At the start, You'd find Trump supporters all dressed up, and they adore him. But they would say to you, "Oh, of course he's, of course he tells lies. Yeah, of course he fiddles his tax returns. Yeah, we know he, we know he cheats on his wife, and he's a bad boy. He was a lovable rogue, but he was their lovable rogue. Mm-hmm. But I sensed that among these people, they could discern that there were kind of elements about him that he was a wide boy mm-hmm. um, in a lot of what he did at the ellipse." The day of the storming of the Congress on the 6th of January, 2021, none of that was there. It was just cult-like devotion. The only truth was the truth of Donald Trump. Anyone else who said anything contradictory, you know, when I pushed back and said, but look at all these judges who've rejected you, you're fake news. Mm. And the judges are part of the deep state. That is where there is culpability. The media has polarized and so that on, if you turn into on to CNN or MSNBC, you will hear what an evil man Donald Trump is and how he lies inveterately, and there is no middle ground. And if you go on to some of the other stations, which are pro-Trump, you will hear that he is the saviour of mankind, and no one can question a thing that he does. And that is the failure of the media. 
But that's that. But what about just a, a quick one on on when you're out at these rallies? Do you feel physically scared when you're with these Trump people? Uh, I haven't done. I've, I mean, I've been jostled. Uh, I have been spat at, which is not pleasant. Um, I've been called fake news and a liar and all the rest of it. Um, and I, I've never felt real physical jeopardy. But when I when I went to the rally that Trump spoke at, where he told people they've got to be strong and we've got to take our country back and we've got to fight like hell for it and we've got to march on Congress, there was a very different mood. Mm. You know, mm. I, and I I tweeted, you know, I think about eleven o'clock, eleven thirty that morning, saying this feels really edgy, and you don't want to put out a tweet which says, "Oh my God, help! There's going to be violence," because that is you know, alarmist and, but it, it really did feel different and that the mm. mood had changed substantially. And that is very worrying. What do you think? So like when we, you know, I heard you on the radio this morning and one of the stories that was on was this FBI uh, expressing concern that there's going to be attacks on capitals around the country and the different states of the United States and you said that this was not a cathartic moment. It didn't feel like a healing moment, and the arrests that have followed haven't led to that, and nothing that Trump has said or done since has led to that. So without being alarmist, how do you, how do you see this panning out, you know, now and into the middle distance? And, and what does that mean for a new president taking over? Uh, you know, it's all very well just being glib and saying, well, look at Donald Trump's legacy. Donald Trump's legacy is that he's left this country bitterly divided. We're still reeling from the pandemic. The economy is in the toilet. You know, what a disaster. That's Joe Biden's inheritance. Mm. That's what Joe Biden's got to pick up on when he comes into power. Um I don't believe that Congress will suddenly become bipartisan, that everyone will be singing Kumbaya and reaching across the aisle. Um, I'm, as I'm talking to you now, I am looking at pictures of the State House in Madison, Wisconsin, and all you're seeing are uh, people boarding up the windows of the State House. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a very tense time. And, you know, I always kind of, I, <laughs> you know, we're journalists. And so occasionally we go in for hyperbole and we exaggerate stories. I'm now feeling I'm trying to reverse that. I'm trying to play it down. But, my God, I think this is a perilous moment for US democracy. And I never thought I would say those out words out loud and mean them. You haven't had a sense that because of the... Uh, and you're right, I probably only get one side. If I'm watching American news, I watch CNN. I read the New York Times every now and then. I've, I've unfollowed Donald Trump. It was one of the most joyous moments of the last four years. I decided when he became president, I would unfollow him on Twitter. That will show him, I thought. Um, but, you know, I, I, so I'm probably only getting one side. But when, when you see that happening now, and you see these state legislators and state police forces having to take seriously the warnings that there could be trouble in, literally right around the United States of America until this Trump phenomenon is dealt with and cauterized. One, is it impossible to cauterize it now? And secondly, you know, it, are you sort of, when you say you don't want to be alarmist, are you saying you don't want to say out loud that you think America could be on the verge of some modern civil war? I, I'm no. I, I think that the civil war idea. I mean, I've seen some, and uh, you know, comment on that that America is on the verge of the next civil war, and the best thing that happens is for states to secede from the union. 
And I think that's nonsensical because the right. Civil War, the original Civil War, was about slavery and Southern. Okay, right, all right. What about what about widespread no, civil no, unrest? No, 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 no. I th- but, sorry, I was just. Gonna, I, I'm not. I'm not trying to denigrate the point. Okay, there could be a civil war, but it's going to be between urban and rural. Mm. It's going to be cities and suburbs versus the countryside. Those are where the real polarizing splits are in America. It's not between the South and the North, which is what the original civil war was fought over. Mm. I think that if anyone can lower the temperature and start some kind of process, it is Joe Biden. Mm. Remember that he, to use the phrase from Teddy Roosevelt of what the president, the president has the bully pulpit. Joe Biden can command an audience anytime he wants to by just walking into the briefing room in the White House, which is about 25 steps away from the Oval Office. Mm -hmm. He can just do that. And I think that he will be seeking as much as possible. And, uh, but, you know, the thing that I found terrifying when I went to the, you know, the rally on the day of the Trump inspired storming of Congress was the number of people who said to me, with 100% certainty and belief, the thing about Joe Biden is he's a Marxist, he's a member of the Chinese Communist Party, he is paid for by Beijing, they own him, America is going to become a communist country. Mm. And I what think, do you do? what do you do? Well, well, I, I push back and then they say, you're fake news. And I say, look, this is a guy who's been in public life for 47 years. Call him old, call him a bit boring, call him long-winded, call him, you know, call him a moderate, but none of the descriptions, none of the epithets you're using remotely fit mm. who Joe Biden is. Now, maybe when people see who Joe Biden is and that and the, the Communist Manifesto is not replacing uh, the American Constitution, then maybe people will start to kind of come down off their high horse. But I think that Donald Trump has to play a role in this as well. And I have... If Donald Trump were to come out and say, okay, I now accept that there was no fraud. I exhausted the legal avenues. I wanted to test the legal avenues. When I said that I won by a landslide, that wasn't true because obviously- But John's not going to do that. He's not going to do that. He's not going to do that, no. And so it's hard to see how the healing process continues. And even if he did that, are these people not too far gone? Does he not then become the one that that is the traitor that's betraying what they believe in? But that, but that was the force of the video, which apparently he now regrets, that he put out the night after uh, the riots, mm. where he said, you know, where he just sold them down the river. He, mm. you know, on Wednesday morning, he's saying to them, go up, go to the Congress. We've got to show strength. We mustn't show weakness. We've got to fight. Otherwise, our country will be taken from us. There was massive fraud. And then, he, and then the next day, he says, no, well, obviously you shouldn't have done that. And uh, anyone who broke the law, you know, you defiled American democracy and you deserve the full force of the law. Mm. And I'm sure a lot of these guys are thinking, but hang on, we just did what you told us to do, Donald. And and there were there were all sorts of conspiracy theories that the, it was a deep fake video and it wasn't actually made by Donald Trump. It was that uh, Donald Trump was blackmailed into this by his own cabinet. And that is why he did it. So nothing is ever what it seems. And I think there's a bit of that in Britain, but the propensity to believe a conspiracy theory just seems to me on an entirely different scale in the United States compared to Britain. Well, in Britain, I think we tend to think it's a cock up. God hasn't the government of whatever shade. You know, hasn't Boris made a right old balls up of this? Um, 
rather than, oh my God, there is some deep state conspiracy going on here. And I think there is something fundamentally different about the mindset of the British, where we go, oh God, aren't they useless, to America, where they think, that the, the this is the CIA and the FBI. And, and, do, you, and do you think it's the it's the it's the different media landscape that I think, by the way, that we do have very similar problems in Britain, but we're just a little bit behind the times. But do you think it's the media landscape that is the big difference? I think I think the media landscape is a huge contributory factor. But I think that uh, you go back to when you were you know working for Tony Blair. I'm sure at times it was massively frustrating that the message that you wanted to get across would be mediated by us, the damn media getting in the way. And I think that what's happened in America now and with the social media landscape as well, mm. is that people don't need to go to the news to find out what's happening. They don't need to turn on the equivalent of the six o'clock or the 10 o'clock news or you know ITN or whatever it happens to be, or Sky. They get what they want to hear. And I think that that is something that, of course, is you know very similar in the UK, that fewer people read newspapers, fewer people listen to conventional uh, linear news bulletins where we curate the running order. People choose that what they want to hear. And that is the damaging bit because, of course, you then live in an echo chamber and you never get anything that challenges the total, total nonsense that you're spouting. But that means that we've we've also failed as cultures then educationally because what it means is that people have have lost the ability or the willingness to be curious about what might be true. Yeah, I think that's a very valid point. I think that these tools of you know of, of Facebook and and probably Facebook is among the more benign compared to some of the sites I've seen out here where people are spouting and reinforcing each other with this nonsense. Um, the, the tools have arrived. And no one has, people have been very slow to wake up to the dangers mm. of all this content out there that is unmediated, that is just allowing people. I, I remember during the 2016 election campaign, was sort of the wake up call for me was when this guy turns up with an AR 15 assault rifle uh, at a pizza restaurant in Northwest Washington. He fires a shot into the ground from an AR 15 and says, I've come to free the children. This was a conspiracy theory that Hillary Clinton and John Podesta, uh, the chief of staff of the campaign, and the owner of this pizza restaurant were keeping children enslaved in the basement of this pizza restaurant yeah. as part of some paedophile ring. What's called? Comet. Uh, yeah, yeah, Ping Pong Comet yeah. pizza. The restaurant didn't have a basement. Apart from that, the theory was great. This stuff is now widespread. QAnon. Yeah is, you know, saying that all these people in Washington, we are Satanists running a Satanist paedophile ring. I'm probably included in that uh, because I'm part of the media. Yeah. I, yeah. And what do you do? So, look, you know, I saw yesterday that Twitter had taken down 70,000 accounts linked to QAnon. And I'm sure there are going to be people who would passionately disagree with me and say this is a grotesque infringement of free speech and all the rest of it. I think if people are endangering, you know, th there are limits on free speech. But hold on, just on that, do you do you not share the concerns that Angela Merkel and Emmanuel Macron have both expressed concerns about Facebook and Twitter, as it were, censoring Trump from using their platforms, as whatever we think of him as a democratically elected president of America? Is that not them actually, you know, because they have become impossible to regulate, 
they are now regulating the politicians. I this is this is I I, I kind of I, I'm 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 sort of the, I would not be an ideal guest on the moral maze for this particular issue because no, it's difficult. I I think it's incredibly difficult. Look, Twitter is a private members club. If they want to have someone as a member, they can have someone as a member. And if they don't want them to be a member, they don't have to have them as a member. I, and I also thought that some of the commentary around the fact that how can you deprive Donald Trump of his voice? No one's depriving Donald Trump of his voice. He could go to the briefing room anytime he wants. The cameras of every TV network would be on him. There would be a mm. chance to answer questions. He is not cut off from the world. No. He's cut no. off from Twitter where he has said things which have stirred up and taken America to the brink. But I think, I think the point that Merkel was making is that and, you know, she has never hidden, to her credit, she has never hidden her <laughs> disdain for Trump and her worries about Trump getting elected. Uh, and she certainly didn't ever recommend him for a Nobel Peace Prize, as other Western European leaders have done. But I do think where she's got a genuine point is that this is them accepting, if you like, that they are published as well as platforms. So they've, and, you know, there's plenty of people who have used social media perhaps not with the volume that Trump does it, but for worse purposes, who have been on there for yeah. years. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But, you know, but if that is what they are doing, then live with the consequences of that, that mm. there will be regulation that will follow Yeah. That if you are a publisher yeah. um, and that you will have to kind of have some kind of reflection on the, what is being put up on your site. Mm. It, it is true. And I, I'm, funnily enough, Donald Trump was arguing for that. I mean, Donald Trump... That's right has been arguing for, you know, that there should be some control. Um, but that is the corollary of having control, is that they will say, right, well, you're not following our rules and we could get into trouble for publishing this, therefore we're taking it off. Mm. Um, and maybe, you know, look, there's no doubt that the speed with which the social media companies arrived, developed, grew, the regulatory space just didn't keep up with what was happening. Yeah. And maybe there is going to be some reckoning on that. Just on the, um, the, the this thing about the role of the media and the normalisation of lying, which I think has happened. Um, and I do. Can I, I just push back a bit on that? Yeah, go on. I think on the BBC. I mean, I'm 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 sort of being slightly in defence of myself and defence of my colleagues. Okay, okay. Well, before you do that, John, just before you do that, hold on. Yeah. Let me just let me just sort of zone in a bit on this. So, for example. You know, and I, I freely accept that I'm not a big fan of the UK government and that I'm moderately obsessed with Brexit being a very bad idea. I accept that. I lay that on the table. But just to give you an example, the other day there was a story... People would have had no idea if you hadn't said well, that. Well, there, there may be people listening to one who were not aware of either of those two things. <laughs> However, the other day, BBC News, and I, despite having had many big differences with the BBC in my time, I remain a big defender of the BBC, and I do think they're an important part of a better media landscape than we have in the United States. I'll agree with you on that. But there was a report the other day on the, the main bulletins about empty supermarket shelves in Northern Ireland as a result of uh, the, the changes of the arrangement between the GB and, and Northern Ireland in relation to trade. And Michael Gove, who was one of the leading figures of the Vote Leave campaign, was the ministerial voice in the package. And his clip was, and I've written it down here because I was so exasperated at the time, we always said there would be short-term problems like this. Now, that is directly contradictory. I would argue that is a lie. That is rewriting the past to suit his moment in the present. And I don't believe clips like that should be shown without being challenged. Am I being... 
naive and unfair. Well, look, I didn't see the article, so I'm not. I'm, I didn't see the piece you're, you're talking to. Um, I do think we need to contextualise. Um, I had a problem. I'm probably going to get in trouble for saying this. I had a problem with a, a piece that one of my colleagues did, uh, and this is on. You know, this is on my backyard in, in on Trump, where the, the, there were a bunch of people saying that the, the riots were caused by Antifa, by the far left. Yeah, it was. It, they were dressed up as Trump supporters, and that and that it was a false flag to say that it was uh, Trump supporters who did this. Now, there is precisely zero percent evidence of that. It just doesn't exist. All the people that have been arrested, all the people that have been charged, bona fide Donald Trump far right supporters, and I thought that us putting on uh, a vox pop of people saying it just needed a line. There is no evidence of that. And so I and so I have contacted the 10 o'clock news when they weren't doing a piece from me. They were just going to do a read about, you know, and Donald Trump has again said that the elections were uh, fraudulent. And I said, you need a line, comma, but these are unsubstantiated claims. Mm. Because I think we can normalise. If if Donald Trump keeps on saying there was fraud, there was fraud, there was cheating, there was cheating, there was fraud, 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 and we are not challenging that regularly, then we are letting our audience down because the narrative is being created by almost a process of osmosis that you keep hearing this so much, you think, oh, well, there must be fraud. So I think we do have a duty. Mm. I think we have a duty to... You know, I, but the the piece in question that you're talking about, I, I haven't seen and I haven't heard. Well, I, I, I will say, I'll send it to you, but it's one of many. I, I think that I do think on both on COVID and on Brexit at the moment, the, the lack of context, the fact that, for example, that the government can give out a piece of advice that is directly contradictory, but given with the same passion as the contradictory piece of advice a week earlier, I think is, for example, what has caused a lot of the problems we've had. Now, accepting that it's a very difficult a very difficult situation to handle. Just on the pandemic, by the way, the cover of your book is a, it's America, the shape of America, uh, like a mask, the flag like a mask. Were you, given what you'd known in your time there, were you at all surprised at the extent to which the pandemic became politicised in the way that it did? And in fact, you know, if you're a Republican, you didn't take it seriously and you thought that wearing a mask was a bit sort of, you know, a bit kind of a feat. Uh, and if you were a Democrat, you thought it was, you know, the end of the world and we should all, you know, stay at least two metres away from each other. It, it, I, I think that if people look to the reasons why Donald Trump lost the election, I think the failure of leadership over COVID is the biggest single thing. When early on in the pandemic and you have people chafing against the shutdown and in Michigan a whole group of paramilitaries go to the state house called the Wolverines. Uh, a number of them have been arrested for a plot to kill the governor, Gretchen Whitmer, and they're facing very serious charges. Why didn't Donald Trump say, not now, this is not the time, we've got to deal with the pandemic, when it became mm. obvious that masks were going to play a critical role? It wasn't just that Republicans thought they were a feat, Alistair. It was, I mean... They have become totally weaponized. When mm. I, so, uh, you know, going to that Trump rally out, I see a guy dressed as Uncle Sam. And I think, oh, that's a good shot for my piece. And, and so we start filming him and he points and he says, 
take your mask off. That is offending me. Get that mask off now. Very aggressively. He's got mm. a bunch of guys with him. Intimidating. This is the land of the free. Now, I don't buy into the libertarian argument, particularly, that it's fine not to wear a mask. I think that if you've got any sense that there is a public health safety benefit to it, then for God's sake, wear a mask. What's the worst thing mm. that could happen? Why is this such an infringement on your personal liberty? If it can save some more lives, let's give it a go. Let's give so how, did, how, go. Did that, how did that become a kind of right-left issue? So initially, the, the advice was don't try and buy masks because, of course, there was such a shortage of uh, mm. PPE equipment. Then uh, the, the Centers for Disease Control uh, comes out and says people should wear masks, important contribution. And Donald Trump says, well, I'm not going to wear a mask. And then he says to uh, a reporter is asking a question at the White House, wearing a mask. And, th and then he goes, no, I can't hear you. I can't hear you. Yeah, yeah I, I can't hear you. You're just being politically correct. And so it became a litmus test. If you wanted to show you were tough and you were manly and you were with Donald Trump, you stand without any social distancing and you don't wear a mask. So it became a political statement. Yeah. The, the mask... The great big car that people drive in America, the Ford F-150 truck. Mm. Um, you know, if you see an F-150 truck driver, I, I would bet that 85% of them vote Trump. And if you see people driving around in a Volvo or a Toyota Prius hybrid, I bet they were voting Biden. And so it became with masks as well. Mask wearing was a Democrat thing to do. So in D.C., I mean, I was, I came back uh, for Christmas and I was back, you know, in the same neighborhood where you live. Um, and I was on Hampstead High Street and I could not believe how few people were wearing masks when everyone is in pretty close proximity, wandering around. And you've got this newly, newly, highly contagious variant of the disease. In Washington, D.C., if I go out onto M Street or Wisconsin Avenue or any of the main thoroughfares, 85, 90% of the people just walking along the street will be wearing a mask. So despite Trump, a lot of people take it seriously. Did he do anything in, in terms of the, the, that you would expect a normal leader to do during that, the period of the pandemic? Well, the, the, the thing was, and again, this is where I think that, I don't think you can paint Donald Trump as this black and white, you know, in terms of good, evil, or whatever. He's a more complicated figure. He took the advice of the epidemiologists that uh, you had to close the economy down at the start. And he, you know, Amer America shut its economy before Britain did. Yeah. America yeah. did an awful lot of the things that Britain was very slow to do. It mm. cranked up production of ventilators. It bought PPE. It did it in a dysfunctional and crazy way. But there was more PPE equipment. There was earlier social distancing. So at the outset, I think that uh, under Trump's leadership and through the coronavirus task force, they were taking it much more seriously. But then he ha had to make the calculation, I've got an election to win. How am I going to do that? I need to be going out to rallies and I need to be getting the thousands of people to turn up. And actually, you know, in epidemiological grounds, it wasn't great. But the politics of what he was doing made sense in that mm. he was, you know, he was reaching a large audience. Now, listen, let's just talk a little bit about, um, hopefully before too long, we'll be talking a lot more about Joe Biden than we do about Donald Trump. And he, as you alluded earlier, he's got a horrific kind of entry as he, as he comes into office. But 
from the British perspective, what should we be looking out for as, as to how things will be different? How will it look and feel different? Forget all the kind of personality stuff and all that. We know, you know, we know you'll govern in a different way and try to build consensus. But on the big policy tickets, economy, China, attitude to Europe, climate change, what are we going to notice that's different? Well, I think immediately you'll see that uh, the US rejoins the Paris Climate Change Agreement. You're going to see a much more conventional American foreign policy in a lot of ways. So if you look at the background of Anthony Blinken, Tony Blinken, who is going Mm. to be the new uh, Secretary of State, he is internationalist, global community, believes in things, you know, so the World Health Organization, America will rejoin the World Health Organization. It will rejoin the Climate Change Agreement. It will be much more pro-NATO than Donald Trump has been. That said, I, you know, Donald Trump saying to the rest of Europe, hang on, you can't just look to us to fund this endlessly. You know, we're not going to be taken for a ride. That is a sentiment that was felt by Barack Obama and will mm-hmm. be felt by Joe Biden. So there will be areas of continuity in foreign policy. I, I think if you look at Joe Biden's economic policy, it is much more protectionist than a Barack Obama policy would have been because I think that they have learned the lesson that Trumpism did speak to economic nationalism, that people felt that under Clinton and under Bush and then under Obama, jobs were being exported wholesale to the Philippines and to call centers in India and that we need to repatriate those jobs and bring them back on shore. And so, you know, made in America is going to be a big thing for Biden as well. And so I think... What about attitudes to China? I think that Biden would take a similarly tough line on China, and particularly maybe on some of the human rights aspects of that, of what's happening in Hong Kong, what's happening to the Uyghurs. Um, But I don't think it will be quite as provocative as the way Donald Trump has carried out the trade stuff. But I think there is a commonality that it's not just Republicans who think that China aren't playing by the rules, that Mm. in their attitudes towards uh, intellectual property, towards currency manipulation, um, that there there is more that needs to be done. And so I think that Biden will come in there and will want to show that he's not just reversing everything from Trump. Remember, Donald Trump had millions more people voting for him in 2020 than voted for him in 2016. The Mm. Trump base, the Trump support is not going away. And so Biden needs to reach out to those people as well. And you don't do it by just saying, right, anything that Donald Trump stood for, I'm going to reverse. Do you think think Biden would have been, if he'd have been given a free hand in it and it wasn't a sort of matter for Congress, do you think he would have uh, tried to sort of pull the plug on the whole impeachment process? Uh, Yes, I suspect he would have been. He wants to get his people confirmed. He wants to lower the temperature. He wants to... and. There is a real danger in the impeachment process is that at the moment, Donald Trump is seen as villain for what he said for the weeks leading up to it and for what unfolded. If if impeachment looks like it's a purely partisan thing that is unfolding, then Donald Trump could easily move from villain to victim, getting more sympathy along the way. And seeing as he's going to be leaving office anyway, and I think that 
you know, I know there is all the talk that he'll run again in 2024. 2024 is a very long way away. And, you know, who knows what the, the, the district attorney in New York is going to turn up over Trump business interests. Who knows mm-hmm. what might come out of the woodwork? Who knows what Joe Biden is going to find in the Justice Department or at Homeland Security or some of the shortcuts that were made? So there is a part of me that thinks, what is going to be gained in this bitterly divided country by an impeachment process that will further entrench those divisions? And let's just turn a little bit to the UK. Biden, insofar as he has a a profile here up to now, which has been as much about his Irish roots and plagiarising his speech by Neil Kinnock as anything else, what would you define as his basic posture to the UK and how does that change in light of Brexit? Um, Well, I think that initially in terms of trade, a lot of the work that is being done is being done by, you know, USTR, the US Trade Department. Uh, and they're tough. And they are, <laughs> they're trained killers. You know, they're going to be, they're not there to say, oh, we're going to give you a great deal. Now, Donald tell Trump. Us, tell us a story about your lunch with the ambassador. It was breakfast. It was breakfast with the ambassador, the, the the U.S. ambassador, the outgoing U.S. ambassador, Woody Johnson. And I went in there and it was just me, him, and a senior official, a permanent you know, member of the Foreign Service of the U.S. And he starts talking about Brexit, about how this is going to be the renaissance period for British politics. And this is going, and you say, well, yeah, hang on, but what about, you know, what might happen with Scotland wanting independence? And, you know, like a lot of billionaires I've met, well, not that I've met that many, actually, (laughs) but he he just has this sort of self-belief that if I've said it, it must be true. And, um, and then he's, and and he just got wave an arm towards the skies of, oh, don't be so ridiculous. Then he started talking about, do you know why Donald Trump likes the queen? And I said, uh, no, no, I don't, I don't, cause she's a winner. <laughs> and do you know, and do you know why he doesn't like Theresa May? Cause she's a loser. And I thought there was a really interesting insight into the world of the, the their th- way of thinking. Mm. Is, are you, it's just entirely binary. Are you winner and loser? Anyway, we then that's get- why he's hating it so much now. He's a loser. Well, I mean, he hates the idea that he has lost and that he's a one-term loser and he's lost to Joe Biden. So anyway, then the breakfast goes on and we talk about a trade deal and and there'd been some comment about would they try and get, you know, into the NHS as part of a trade deal in terms of drugs and all the rest of it. And I said to him that I felt that what you have to understand is that in the UK, the NHS is the live rail in British politics, just like Gun control is the live rail in American politics. At which point I have had many lunches, Alistair, with prime ministers and people well-known, and, you know, something happened that has never, ever happened before in one of these occasions. He rolls up his trouser leg and says, look at this. Look at Exactly. He says, look at this. And I said, and I'm now outside my comfort zone. I've fully, there are three of us in the room and I'm thinking, what the hell is happening here? And I said, um, uh, very interesting, Ambassador. I, what, I, I'm not sure what I'm looking at. No, because that is what my microsurgeons did in New York City. And I had to have an operation and there is not a mark. And then he rolled his trouser leg up 
further, and I could see there was a raised purple scar on his leg. And he said, you see that? And I said, yeah, I see that. And he said, that's what your National Health Service did to me. Oh, my God. And I thought, this is astonishing. Mm. I mean, one, I couldn't quite believe that the American ambassador, given the number of very fancy private hospitals there are, uh, not very far from Winfield House on Harley <laughs> Street, if you like, um, that he could have got, but it seems that he was treated by the National Health Service and he wasn't happy with what the National Health Service left behind. But I, I concluded my diary entry for that day and said, um, in, the, in the future trade deal, just like the president's leg, it will be on the table. Mm. And, that, and, that, and that will be the same under, under a Biden government. What is, their general, what is their general take on Brexit? Oh, the Biden. Yeah, the Biden, the new administration. I think it's a disaster. Mm. They are they they are very anti Brexit, but you know, to, to use the famous phrase, we are where we are, mm. and they will they will try they will seek to do a trade deal uh, with the UK. I think had the British government not backed down from its I can't remember what the legislation was called the Internal Markets Bill. Internal Markets Bill, yeah. yeah, yeah, which would have. Um, taken Britain out of the international agreement and left open the question of the Irish border. Biden, during the campaign, the only major foreign policy statement he made, apart from in general terms, was he said there will not be a trade deal if this remains. Mm. Um, and it was, a, And I think there was a misjudgment from the British side, from the British government, over what the wider repercussions of that move would be. Because any it's not just a trade deal that Joe Biden negotiates. A trade deal has to get past Congress. And if you haven't and if you haven't got Nancy Pelosi on board, it's not going to get passed. Mm. So mm. so I think that the British are boxing cleverer now on that. And uh, I'm sure there will be a trade deal. But you know, look, the American agricultural sector will be looking at getting chlorinated chickens into the UK. Food is produced much more cheaply in America than uh, in Europe because of, you know, the hygiene standards. That's going to be a battle. Mm. And I don't think, and I don't think that makes a difference whether it's Biden doing it or Trump doing it. Yeah. And have you had any indication as to when, how long after he takes office that Biden might head towards Europe? And where he will see his priorities. Will he, you know, we all dance around this whole thing about the special relationship, but in terms of a, a pecking order in Europe now, where, where would they see it? Is it kind of Brussels, Berlin, Paris, London, or is it, how do they, how do they view the whole landscape? Um, I think the landscape is complicated, and I think it depends where you go to, from issue to issue. So, for example, I think that, the, that, you know, people talk about the special relationship far too much, and yeah. You know, it, it's to the point of being ridiculous. Mm. But I do think that in the areas of uh, defence and intelligence cooperation, there is a special relationship. The British do work very, very closely uh, with the Americans on this sort of stuff, and that will continue. And that sort of, and I think that the the, the people that you've got now uh, at the top of the national security apparatus and at the top of uh, foreign policy are going to be much more pro-European. And I should imagine that, the, you know, I mean, Joe Biden should be coming to, I think, Glasgow uh, in November for the uh, environment talks. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that, does Britain hold the G7 or the G20 at the moment? And which G7, yeah. G7, so there will be that. Mm. Um, 
so and I, I think there'll be a lot of interaction, but we are in this world where, you know, prime ministers are not traveling abroad, and neither are presidents. Mm. Has mm. Donald Trump left the country since he went to India in February or March last year? I don't think he's traveled anywhere since then. Wow. So the normal kind of, oh, let's have a race, who can be the first prime minister or president in to the Oval Office, which Theresa yeah, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not really talking about the meetings. Yeah. I'm talking about the, the strategic priorities, where they would. I guess what I'm asking is whether we've slipped down that pecking order because they did, as I know from my time in government, they did see Britain's part of Britain's power as being our strength in Europe. Yeah, and that they saw Britain as being the bridge. Yeah. That, that we, we could talk to the British because they understood us and the British could talk to Europe because Britain was the bridge between the US and I think that had already changed, to be honest, under Obama, where Obama yeah. moved the strategic focus to Germany and mm. the relationship he had with uh, Merkel. If you read the, have you read the Obama book yet? Yes, I have, yeah. And uh, <laughs> I thought it was interesting that, that Cameron was sort of vaguely dismissed um, <laughs> uh, and, and, and Sarkozy was just this figure that was entirely preposterous. <laughs> <laughs> that was the impression given by uh, what Obama thought. But look, you know, America has to juggle so many different things. And and by and large, often these things, are, the strategic priorities may be there, but it's, you know, world events will just shape what, where he needs. You know, the, the, the great worry is a resurgent China and the power of China in the world. And, you know, so when Donald Trump pulled out of the World Trade Organization and said it was soft and it was feeble and they screwed up the response to the pandemic. World Health Organization. World Health Organization, yeah. yeah. It, it, there was an element in which it was completely over the top and there was an element in which he was absolutely right. That the World Health Organization, you know, America was paying all the money and yet China ruled the roost. And that was a failure on America's part to have not thrown its weight around enough in these inst international institutions where it plays a major role. But if it's a simple question, will Britain's, will Britain's influence increase with America or decrease as a result of Brexit? It's very hard to see what, the, what argument you marshal to say why it would increase. One of the many, many, many good reasons Never to have done it, but there we are, John. As you say, it is what it is, and we are where we are. Uh, well, listen, it's been a joy talking to you as always. Lovely. Thank you for giving us. Thank you. For, thanks for being so generous with your time. Good luck with your book. Um, I'm disappointed you didn't ask me any career-ending questions. I thought, so come on, John, tell me what you honestly think about Donald <laughs> Trump, or, or tell me what you really, you know, don't no, you No, the only, only career-ending, okay, you've, you've, you've walked right into the trap. I knew you would right to the end. Tim Davey, good thing or bad thing? I think good thing. <laughs> yeah, good. Okay. No, I, I genuinely, I genuinely think that uh, Emily Maitlis uh, being castigated for her wonderful, brilliant, superb introduction to Tuesday, where she adopted the mantle of Walter Cronkite. Good thing or bad thing? Should she have been slapped down by the BBC management? <laughs> oh, we've lost, we've lost John. I'm sorry, we've lost John. So <laughs> Listen, you take care. Okay, Carry on pontificating from across the pond. All right, lovely talking to you. We'll see you soon. Take care. All the best.
listening to To The Point with Portland. You can find out more about Portland and what we do at www.portland-communications.com and you can follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook. Stay tuned for more episodes on topics ranging from healthcare to leadership, which we'll be releasing over the coming weeks.